0: Um, welcome to episode 22 of the podcast. Um, my guest today is Kyle J. Anderson. He's an assistant professor at the State University of New York, SUNY. Uh, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. It's not SUNY, Uh Old
1: West Bay. That's right.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. SUNY Old West His book, which I finished reading uh, not long ago, and which we'll be discussing uh, shortly, is titled The Egyptian Labor Corps, Race, Space, and Place in the First World War. And on that note, I'd, li- I'd also like to thank the Netherlands Flemish Institute in Cairo for giving me access to their library, um, where I read uh, the first chapter of the book. Uh, thanks, Steve. Um, combining sources from archives in four countries, um, Anderson explores Britain's role in Egypt during this period um, of the First World War and how the ELC, the Egyptian Labour Corps, came to be, as well as the experiences and hardships these men endured. He also examines the ways they coped through music, theater, drugs, religion, strikes, and routine. He illustrates how Egyptian nationalists, seeing their countrymen um, in a state akin to slavery, began to grasp that they had been racialized as people of color. Um, Excuse the passing by uh, a trap. Not only does the book document, (laughs) not only does the book document the history of the ELC, it it also works. and its works during the first world war it also provides an alternative way to which the uh, to which Egypt's uh, 1919 revolution could be interpreted uh, welcome
1: great yeah thank you so much for having me I'm excited to talk about the book
0: yeah uh, glad to have you um so we start the book by talking about uh, Sabbat Harun Muhammad so why do not you start by talking about that guy
1: sure I mean uh, Sbat Harun Muhammad, is buried in the Odenkirk Military Cemetery in Belgium. Um, and I started by looking at that particular burial site because it really brought up a number of questions. First and foremost, how is it that this uh, this guy, this Faddaf from rural Egypt ended up in Belgium in the First World War? That's not a story that many people, even many Egyptians, are familiar with. Um, but even more than that, I think it was interesting for me trying to look at Saabat Khodr Mohammed's story. How difficult it was to really pin down the details, because uh, if you look at the sources, the grave registration reports for Adenpur Military Cemetery, there's a ton of details about the white soldiers and troops from be it uh, Britain or Russia or Germany or. Czechoslovakia, but um, there's very little information about this one grave, Sabah Harun Muhammad. right? All it says is that he served in the Egyptian labor corps. So it shows the imbalance of information and attention that was given to uh, white troops on the one hand and Egyptian laborers on the other. While the white troops have a ton of information in the sources about them, this Egyptian Grave only has really a couple lines where it mentions that he served with the Egyptian Labor Corps. So, part of what I do in the beginning of the book is I try to trace the possibilities of who Sabirun Muhammad could be and how uh, he could have gotten there, which company he might have belonged to, because um, it's unclear. We don't really know for sure. And I also I think make a point about the the global color line, right? The existence of a difference in uh, race. Uh, the way that people are treated based on their race, right? So the global color line implies a distinction between white people and everybody else, and that white people are privileged uh, systematically um, through the institution of the global color line. So I think that Sabat Muhammad's story and the imbalance of information in his grave records can really illustrate this global color line. Uh, So that's why I start the book with that story.
0: Yeah. And what is the, the Egyptian liberal court? Like, how, how can you define that? And how did you first come across it?
1: Well, I first came across it um, from my dissertation advisor. When I was getting my PhD, my advisor, is Ziad uh, who has written a number of books about the 1919 revolution and, and Egyptian nationalism after the 1919 revolution. He told me that Egyptians had been recruited to serve in World War One. Nobody really knew many of the details about how many and where they served. And when I got into the British archives for the first time in 2014, that was when I began to discover how large and how long lasting the Egyptian labor corps was. So the Egyptian labor corps is basically a group of migrant laborers who were recruited from Egypt, mainly from the Egyptian countryside and the Delta and the Said, and they were Sent by the British to work behind the front lines, especially in Palestine, as the British were attacking the Ottomans in Palestine and Syria. But they also served in many theaters of battle, including Gallipoli and France. They served in Toronto, Italy. They served in Iraq. They served in Sudan and Libya. Uh, And so I was able to, and they served for a long time too. They served actually from 19. 15, all the way until 1921. So normally when we think about uh, World War I and we think about it ending in 1918, but the Egyptian labor corps continued to serve, especially in Palestine, all the way through August of 1921. So when we're talking about the Egyptian labor corps, that's what we're talking about. This organization of migrant laborers from Egypt, there were about a half a million of them total, according to my estimates in the book. Who served from 1915 to 1921 on temporary contracts, usually six months at a time, uh, in various theaters of battle, supporting the troops. So they weren't carrying weapons or fighting. Sometimes you'll hear, or at least you know, the the Egyptian uh, army used to say, you know, that the uh, the Egyptian labor corps represented Mushtarka and Mustri al Harb al Right, but it's not it's not the Gish, It's not Allegation Mustri. It's this group of of laborers who um were recruited by the British to support uh British army troops. Um and they didn't serve uh, they didn't you know carry weapons themselves, the Egyptian labor court.
0: Yeah. And how was the process of their recruitment or their like doing them into uh, into the ELC? How's that process like?
1: Well that's a complicated question and not easy to answer simply because as I mentioned there were a hundred uh, half Uh, half a million, um, 500,000 men who were recruited total, and each one of them um, went through kind of a somewhat different um, process. But if we were to think about it in basic schematic terms, you would say about a third of them entered into uh, a contract kind of in a voluntary way, where they were recruited by labor contractors, um, or later on in the War. It became uh, the responsibility of the Almud in the the villages to recruit these young men. But about a third of them entered involuntarily. One of the sources I read said that there were a significant or I mean, a number of sources mentioned that it could have been an option for men who were going to jail. Right. Instead of going to jail, you could serve six months in the ELC. And one of the sources I read estimated that about a third of the men entered into the core that way, where they would have been arrested for something and they would have been given this option to fulfill their, um, their, their, you know, punishment, I guess. Um, and then the, another third or so would have been forcibly conscripted, right? That needed a battery or something along the lines of a sofra. And a uh, sofra refers to this um, system of forced labor that was common during the Ottoman period, uh, also known in European history as the Kolbe. Uh, And during the First World War, one of the interesting things that I found was that the British actually reinstituted the Kolbe or asofra. They had claimed to make sofra illegal back in the 1890s, but they reinstituted it from 1917 to 1921 or so so that they could recruit young men for the Egyptian labor force. So this kind of changes a signature achievement of British policy in the years before the war. So Ridley, um, it started out with the contractors. And then once the Ahmed came into the picture in 1917 and got more involved, things got more based on forcible conscription. And finally, in 1918, Asufra was, was reintroduced in order to meet this labor requirements
0: yeah and um, I don't remember which chapter was it but there was this um, passage about how that was kind of compared to slavery at some point um so how and why was that connection made
1: well um the specific examples where we see this, being compared to slavery, I found in particular in the writings of uh, Salama Musa, in his uh, memoir, Tarbiyat Salama Musa, he um, goes to Sakazeg, where he grew up, and he talks about the the, um, the scenes that he saw, and he relates them to Karya uh, Zanjaya, right? A, uh, a village of Zanj, right? Uh, or Zanuj and um or as a noog, i guess you might say as well but the uh you know the the thing that he's talking about at the time is how the men are being transported what's going on is that they're being um tied up with a thick rope around their waist and they're being tied to men in front of them and behind them with this big thick rope and then they're being led in in a line being pulled buy this rope to get from the villages to uh, the the Marquez, the district center, where they would have been kept for a few days or or a few weeks before they got transported on uh, in the process. And so uh, Salama Musa looks at this and he compares it to slavery. Um, That's really the most explicit comparison to slavery that I saw. There's a lot of other comparisons that you see to kidnapping, khataf in the sources of, um, for example, Saad Zagul's memoirs or Ahmed Shafiq Pasha's memoirs, they both talk about, um, Khataf or how the men were, you know, it's Khatafu. Um, but, uh, I think that there's something deeper kind of underlying these comparisons to slavery and it has to do with how Egyptians were in a structurally analogous position to, um, black Africans during the war, right? Because in the years before the war, Egypt always had, and the Ottoman Empire always had kind of a special status in the British Empire, I should say, because Egypt and in India as well were considered to be Muslim territories, and the British were trying to keep a nominal alliance with the Ottomans, they always treated the Muslim majority in Egypt um, as if they were unique right? Like the, for example, the British empire in Egypt was ran out of the foreign office instead of the colonial office or the India office or the war office, like other parts of the empire. Egypt was never before the war. It was never declared a protectorate. It was always technically legally part of the Ottoman empire still. And the British just occupied it behind the scenes and de facto, the British ran the scene, but by law, Egypt was still technically part of the Ottoman Empire up until um, November of 1914, right? And so what's, what's happening during the war is that that special status that Egypt as part of the Ottoman Empire had maintained during the 30 years or so of British occupation from 1882 to 1914, that kind of went away, right? And all of a sudden, Egyptians are no longer... Legally part of the Ottoman Empire, now they're legally a protectorate of the British Empire. And they're legally in the same position as a number of other states, including states in East Africa, like the Uganda Protectorate and and others. Um, And so, and and on top of that, once Egyptians started getting recruited to serve in the Egyptian labor corps, they were being treated just like um, people across the world, including in Africa. Uh, The British recruited a number of laborers from countries like South Africa, um, from the Gold Coast, uh, but also from the West Indies and from um, from India, of course. Right. So the, the special status that Egyptians had and the unique position that they had occupied in the British Empire before 1914 kind of went away during the war and all of a sudden. Egyptians found themselves in a structurally analogous position to people throughout the British Empire in Africa and India, the British Empire proper, right? You could say that, you know, before 1914, the British operated this kind of veiled protectorate, where they were technically running the scenes behind the show. But but legally speaking, there was still this veil of Ottoman sovereignty. But during the war, the veil gets kind of ripped off or lifted. And Egyptians become fully integrated into the British Empire. And so so when I see metaphors about slavery in the sources, what I interpret from reading those is that Egyptian nationalists are identifying that their special status as sort of part of Islamic civilization connected to the Ottomans has disappeared, and now they are being treated like black Africans, right? And so we'll talk more about that, I think, uh, throughout the course of this conversation. But since you asked me about slavery, you know, I think it's important to understand that slavery is not just a metaphor for Egyptian nationalists, but that Egyptian nationalists during the 1919 revolution actually grew up in a society where slavery was common, right? Where you had um, slaves from the Sudan, from Ethiopia, Who worked in elite homes as servants, and also you had slaves from Sudan uh, and and other places in Nilotic East Africa, who were working in fields um, in the in the and in different uh, rural formations um, in the countryside. So um, when people like Salama Musa are comparing. Egyptians being led away to serve in the first world war to slaves. To me, I think slavery has a particular meaning in his mind, which is associated with black Africans, with Zanoog in particular. And when he calls this scene Karia Zangia, right, he is um he is evoking that connection. I, 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 in my mind, it's hard to separate that that metaphor from the real slavery that Salama Musa and others in his generation actually experienced. And so I think that there are some important racial connotations in what Salama Musa is identifying when he calls uh scenes in Zakazik like uh like Zangeya. Yeah. Um, and generally
0: speaking, what was the the nature of the work?
1: Well, when the men got to the different fields of battle they were largely engaged in logistical labor which means moving things from one place to another so they were transporting supplies and weapons to the soldiers in france they were working mainly on the docks where they would load and unload ships that were full of supplies they would load them off of ships and put them onto trains and the trains would go to the the front, the western front. They did that in Italy as well. When they were in Palestine, they obviously started um, around the Suez Canal and had to push through Sina and get to Palestine. And one of the ways that they did that was by building uh, a railroad which connected um Kantar al-Sharq, to, uh, or, uh, I guess it's Kantara sharpia right, or Cantara-Shark on the east bank of the Nile, or on the east bank of the canal, right? And they're moving it, uh, they're building a railroad all the way to Zaza from, uh, from Kantara. And, um, in addition to building the railroad, they had to build water pipelines, so that troops had something to drink uh, out in the deserts of Sina and into Palestine. So, some of the sources call this, you know, a bridge of steel and water that the Egyptian laborers had to build across the desert in Sinai. Um, but they also worked, they worked at uh, at Port Said in Suez on the docks there. They built roads all throughout Palestine and into Syria. Um, and they were called on to do a number of other odd jobs like. Be stretcher bearers or to operate steamrollers to build roads. Um, so they really did basically whatever was necessary. There was a whole separate corps, which was called the Camel Corps, Camel Transport Corps, and they were responsible for moving supplies in the deserts. So before that railroad was finished that connected Kamtara to Gaza, all the supplies had to be moved by camel which were driven by Egyptian young men. And also in Sudan and in Libya, the the Western Desert region, Camel Transport Corps were the number one way to transport supplies from one place to another. So basically Egyptians did everything that was needed to move supplies and ammunition and weapons to the troops. Yeah.
0: And also when it comes to the 1990 revolution, your book kind of offers um, uh, maybe radically viewed by the state, because that's not the the most, um, like I, I recall recently hearing of the, the Egyptian military celebrating its participation in the First World War, um, when in fact it was the uh, DLC, the Egyptian Labour Corps, and also when it comes to the 1919 Egyptian revolution, um, I was in, in, in school not long ago, and... I remember, <laughs> I remember studying it, and there was no mention whatsoever of the ELC. Um, and so, when I finished reading your book uh, and kind of got towards the end, uh, it was really like kind of made clear that the ELC kind of played a role, specifically in uh, the 1918 like uh, kind of revolts, um, which I also never heard about until I came across your book um so my question is what does your book add on the literature on the 1919 revolution how can it um, how can we understand the nineteen nineteen revolution better
1: yeah i mean i think that's one of the most important contributions that i'm trying to make with this book is to think about the 1919 revolution differently I mean, you mentioned how you learned about it at school, and uh, Dina Heshmet has this great book out last year about the 1919 revolution, where she does a close reading of a high school uh, Sanawiyya Amma history textbook, which talks about the 1919 revolution. And the sort of typical way that the 1919 revolution is talked about is kind of Muslims and Christians in the cities getting together. Um, to to kick out the British after Saad Zaghlul gets arrested and exiled to Malta in March of 1919, and it's usually seen as something that was led by the Afandaya, uh, and you know Muslim and Christian religious leaders and students from the cities primarily together, and then spread out into the rest of the country from that centralized beginning point. Um, after, after March of 1919, right? So that's kind of the standard narrative, I think, that we, that we get or that, you know, that Sana'i Alma teaches about the Egyptian revolution, right? But I think that um, what happens in that narrative is that this this rather small aspect or part of the revolution, which is to say the left and the urban-based afandiya nationalist movement it comes to kind of stand in or represent the entire revolution, right? It has. It comes to stand in for uh, a, a number, a variety, a dizzying variety of different activities that were going on throughout the country. So we focus on the Alfandega and Sadzakluw and the Christian and the Muslim religious leaders, and we ignore all the other things that were going on throughout the country during this moment, right? So. Dina Heschmut, in her book that I just mentioned, it she makes this great. She has this great line where she says, "We have to stop thinking about the 1919 revolution as a movement associated with the Waft and Sad Zaglul, and instead we have to think about it as a moment, right? Not a movement, but a moment. And the moment means that there's actually this period of time, uh, which I would argue begins in 1918, not in 1919." and stretches all the way through to 1923. And that during this moment, this revolutionary moment, there were a number of different political actions that were going on across the country. And that if we make just one of those movements come to stand in for the whole moment, we do kind of epistemic violence to understanding this variety of different political actions that were going on during this moment. Right. Um, and so, as I mentioned, I mean, or as you mentioned in, in your question, right, one of the things that I discovered in the course of writing this book was that there was a wave of riots in response to this recruitment process, this of Igberi or this Sofra, the reintroduction of the Sofra. It led to a number of riots across Egypt in the countryside. Um, it I found reports of 35 separate incidents between may and august of 1918 that were preserved in the british archives but i think that it's probably only a small number of the actual amount of riots that took place that is preserved for us right we only have records today uh that have survived for the last hundred years so there's probably a lot of records that were disappeared and that we don't have access to anymore right but we know that there were at least 35 incidents that took place, and um, you know, just for example, 12 of these 35 incidents took place in the single province of Asut, and um, you know, if there were 14 provinces of Egypt at the time, so in a in a normal distribution, you would have expected a lot less. It's it's a you know, Asut has about 4.8 times what you would have expected in a normal distribution of those events, right? So it seems like. In Asyut, in particular, and in Minya, there were a lot of protests in the summer of 1918 before uh, before the WAF even began, right? Before Saad Zaghloul even had the idea to start the WAF, these protests were, were happening. And in some cases, they were very large. Hundreds of people, uh, whole populations of villages coming out and trying to free people who had been seized by force uh, to go serve in the Egyptian labor corps, right? And... One of the interesting things that, um, that you know, uh, Latifah Salim talks about this, and so does uh, Aliyah Musalam, uh, how Saad Zaglul um, himself witnessed many of these draft riots, right? Because Saad is from Qarabiyyah, and he would go back to his estates uh, frequently. And in May of 1918, one of his diary entries talks about one of these riots that he saw. Uh, in re- in response to Egyptian labor for recruitment, so this is in May of 1918. Remember, Saad Zabul doesn't even get doesn't even start the waft until November of 1918, six months later, and he doesn't get arrested and sent to Malta until March of 1919, which is ten months later. Right. So, um, you know, I think that as as the revolution unfolded, um. What we saw was different types of activities going on in different places. For example, I I really focus on Asut and Alminya in my book. And what I think happens in those two provinces is that very quickly things get out of control for the left. So the left does organize a strike and a series of demonstrations. But then there are protests in some cases against the Waft, in particular uh, Mahmoud Pasha Suleiman, who was a leader of the Waft who lived uh, in the Said. There's reports of protesters surrounding his house and saying, you know, what has uh, Mahmoud Pasha Suleiman ever done for us, right? And this is one of the leaders of the Waft who is getting now um, protested against by these crowds in the 1919 revolution, right? And pretty soon, What happens is you get this proliferation of what are known in the sources as Legan Wataniya, right? And so in in Asyut, you get a Legna Wataniya, which is largely composed of local lawyers and students who had returned back to Asyut from Cairo and from Alexandria, and they are kind of allied with the West, and they form this organization to try to guide and control the protesters. But there's a number of protesters that are sort of outside their control right? And the British ultimately are the ones who are able to tamp down and restore order in Asyut and Armenia. And the way that they do this is by deploying their army, right? They had just used this army, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, to conquer Palestine and Syria from the Ottomans. And then they turn around and they let this army loose in Egypt. And in Asyut in particular, the Royal Air Force... Drops bombs and uses machine guns. Excuse me to um, to get crowds um, uh, under control, and they send a a steamer down the Nile with um, armor and machine guns, and they use this uh, in addition to the, the the air support to crush basically. The rural rebellions in in the countryside, especially in Asut, right. So, I think um, one thing that's important about this is, I think basically people in the countryside, in places like Asut and Elminia and in other places, they had gotten so aggrieved by Egyptian labor corps recruitment and by other types of forced conscription of of their food and of their animals. Also, there's a lot of pandemic disease going on around this time. This is when the Spanish flu uh, is hitting, right? The last big global pandemic that we had. Um, And so there's a lot of reasons why rural Egyptians in particular are fed up and they're angry with the British. And so we can't necessarily just, you know, reduce it all down to the left and what the nationalists were doing. People were protesting for a lot of different reasons. And even though the nationalists were able and did attempt to try to guide these protests, they struggled in doing so because there were elements that were out of their control. And ultimately, it was the British who were able to restore control. And the WAPT actually negotiated with the British while, um, while protests were going on in the countryside and in places like the Suez Canal. Um, so that's, that's one Thing that my book adds to the story is how there are other. It gives another reason why people might have protested in the countryside besides just Sádza and and nationalism, right? But I think that there's another really interesting thing that I found in the course of my research, and that is that uh, a lot of the ELC workers themselves did not participate in the 1919 revolution, right? Um, they continued to be loyal to their British officers all the way up until August of 1921. And there are reports from the officers themselves. Now, granted, these are kind of biased sources, but the officers themselves will say that the Egyptian laborers, the fellahin and the Saada, under their command, were actually like rivals with the protesters in the cities when they were in Alexandria and when they were in Cairo right they did not they could have i mean there were as i mentioned there were thousands of these men they could have decided to go join the protests and attack their officers they did so in other fields of battle but during the 1919 revolution these men did not do that they stayed loyal to their british officers and they continued to serve in the egyptian labor corps all the way up until 1921 and in some cases, they actually filled in for striking laborers who were, who were demonstrating in support of the nationalist cause. In particular, in Port Said, there was a big strike in, I believe it was May of 1919. And all the men who were working on the canal walked out of their jobs to try to paralyze the British um, logistical network, right? And what they ended up doing, what the British ended up doing was bringing in men from the ELC, from the Egyptian labor corps, to fill in for the the strikers. And they were able to continue running people through the canal, even though the strike was going on because they had this big reserve force of labor, right? So the ELC themselves stayed loyal to the British during the 1919 revolution. And I think that is something that the traditional story of the whole nation uniting into one hand, you know, to show the British, uh, the will of the people, right? That story doesn't really fit with the examples that we see in the historical record where people actually stayed loyal to the British during the 1919 revolution. Um, so there's two contributions I think we can make here. One is that there's, there's other reasons besides nationalism why people are protesting in the countryside too. Is that not everybody was actually protesting and some people were actually staying loyal to the British? And then the last thing I think that the the book kind of adds is to think about race and how the ideas about how ideas about race were contributing to mobilizing people during the 1919 revolution. Like in particular, I think we see multiple sources who say that during the war, the British treated us like black people. They treated us like black Africans or they treated us like people of color is another way that sometimes the sources will put it and that that is wrong. We are not people of color. We are not black Africans. We are Egyptians. And I think around this time, the notion of a unique Egyptian race starts to take shape, which is connected with the ancient pharaohs and, um, and is considered to be superior to black Africans and not deserving of subordination to white supremacy because of its long history of civilization in the form of the pharaohs, pharaonic civilization, right? So, um, part of what I see people like Salama Musa or Mohammed Sabriya Sorboni or other, um, you know, I I cite this petition as a third source in the book. Uh, and what these people are saying is, you know, that the British are treating us like people of color, like any old race. But we're not. Uh, we're not. You know, we're a proud race. We're an ancient race, not a inferior race. So stop treating us like one. Basically, I think that's part of the um, idea that is uh animating protests during the 1919 revolution and and the egyptian labor corps plays an important symbolic role in that discourse because the egyptian labor corps are proof of this kind of enslavement of egyptians right this how do we know that egyptians are being treated like like they are inferior like they are racially inferior just look at these men from the egyptian labor corps and the way that they're being treated and you know that should Shock you and disgust you, uh, and you should you know you should be proud that you're not part of um, uh, you know uh, a a race that deserves to be treated like this. But you're part of a a race that is proud and ancient and doesn't deserve to be treated like this. Basically, that's the kind of um, idea that I think existed around this time that people don't talk about that much because. Uh, It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily fit with um, a lot of political narratives that circulate around there today.
0: Uh, Definitely. And I highly recommend listeners to grab a copy of your book and and check it out. Um, And are you working on any future projects?
1: Yeah, uh, actually, kind of in, in the vein of this work, I've become more and more interested with. In, Egyptians, uh, in Egypt's African empire that existed especially during the reign of uh, Ismail um, and how he tried to expand Egypt's empire in Massawa and in the Horn of Africa, in Ethiopia, and in Uganda. Um, so I spent some time with the British archives this summer and I'm going to continue, I think, focusing on Egypt's African empire in the 1860s and 1870s for a future book.
0: Hopefully. Sounds uh, promising. <laughs> right, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank
1: you.